Hello and welcome back. This is the 47th episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. Joining me this month is American techno luminary Zach Kudareski, also known as DBS1. He's perhaps best loved for his dynamic take on techno in both his productions and his DJ sets. Having been involved and around music for nearly 30 years, Zach is an expert in his field. A true veteran of the scene whose roots extend beyond DJing into grassroots raves and event promotion in his native Minneapolis. These days, he continues to push his own limits, getting involved in and starting up projects that not only fuel his love of music, but also his love of the community he was raised in and helped build. His most recent venture, A-Slice, is in its early days, a software-based platform which proposes a fair music ecosystem for DJs and promoters, but its concept is bringing up questions for both me and for Zach. In this conversation, we explore the value of art and the idea of success, his own personal perceptions of his worth as an artist, and what we can expect from a service like A-Slice. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I want to start off by talking a little bit about your roots and how they've maybe helped lead you to the place that you're in now with the projects that you're working on right now. So something that you've talked about a lot in interviews is the scene in the Midwest where you grew up and how it was really this kind of DIY thing, like there was no infrastructure for the scene. So if you wanted to get involved, you had to really do it yourself. So can you talk a bit about for that? For sure. You know, uh, I grew up between Minneapolis and New York. Uh, my father lived in New York, my mother in Minneapolis. And I got a chance to kind of witness a few different scenes and a few different moments in time. And coming back to Minneapolis, totally different from New York, you know, we had early club closings. We didn't have all the opportunities. There weren't these like mega promoters at the time. Mm-hmm. So really, it was a very DIY culture. I mean, like... Uh, you know, the first couple parties I went to, I met some kids. I asked them, oh, who does sound? Who's the person to go to for lighting? Mm. And uh, as you make friends, you make connections. You kind of get an idea of of who are the, you know, great local DJs. And you actually realize that, like, especially in Minneapolis at that time, the Minneapolis local scene uh, got a turnout. It didn't need guests. It didn't really mm. need headliners. And it was more... You know, you supported other people, they supported you. And if you wanted to do something, nobody was just going to hand it to you. So, you know, like I decided early on, okay, I want to try to throw a party and let me see. And kind of got my reputation as a DJ, as a promoter, kind of simultaneously. So I was reading in your DJ Mag feature and you talked a bit about that and how you had a lot of support, not only from your local community, but also from communities in different places like cities that were close to you. I can't now think of what cities I mean, close to it, Minneapolis. It's like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, like the Midwest would be, I would consider that, let's say Wisconsin was close, like Madison, Milwaukee. Uh, in North of Minnesota, you had Duluth and kind of this whole area. You also had Chicago, which was mm. the furthest drive, maybe six, seven hours. Detroit was about 10 to 12. But I would say the Midwest, like we traveled to Chicago and Wisconsin. Mm. Wisconsin, Chicago traveled to us. So we had this kind of triangle of cities. Like when we would promote, we would send flyers to them. They would send flyers to us. We'd promote for each other's shows. So how crucial was it for you guys to be working together in that way? Like, do you think that if the scene was sort of just kept to Minneapolis, it wouldn't have been as successful or as important as it was? You know, it's funny. I mean, even still now when I travel, even with people my age who maybe know have some knowledge of history, they're like, you're from Minneapolis. What went on in Minneapolis? <laughs> so I don't even think they really know that Minneapolis even had a history, uh, even if they were well-educated on the scene. Mm-hmm. I, I just think having a little bit of spread gave us random and different influences. And I've said this a few times before, because we weren't New York or LA or even Chicago, we didn't have any reputation to live up to. Mm. And because we didn't have a reputation to live up to, we could take the best of everything we wanted and make it into our own. 
and I, I so I can't say there's like a Minneapolis sound, but there's something unique about the artists that come out of Minneapolis that come out of that those areas. And it, I always joke, but when someone says Minneapolis, how do you have all this history? I say, have you heard of Prince? Uh-huh. Have you heard of Bob Dylan? Have you heard of some sure. of these amazing legends that come from Minneapolis? You know, so. Uh, they just don't realize that there's actually a great musical history. I really like what you said uh, just before this about how you didn't need like special guests or anything like that. And I think that's quite special and something that is sort of missing today. Like there always has to be a headliner coming from somewhere always. else. I think that's actually gotten even more important in Minneapolis over the years. I mean, there was amazing guests who came through in the 90s. There was parties every weekend, multiple things. Um, but now I can really see that, you know, maybe a, a small local Minneapolis techno party can get between four to 600 people. Mm -hmm. You bring a headliner, it might get you another 100 people and maybe raise the ticket price. But does it really necessarily bring out more people? Not, Mm. Not at a considerable difference, which makes it great that you can build something locally without worrying about all this having to kind of mimic what other places do because yeah in europe everywhere you go which of course i appreciate being a guest (laughs) yeah of course but it's all based on headliners and Mm. i always ask locals like how do your local nights do and they say oh we don't have local nights we Mm. don't do local nights because we won't get anybody to come out and i don't know how how healthy that is so when you think back about those early days sort of having a hand in building this scene um, what is it like for you to think back on that and have this have these memories uh you know of building something with your own two hands I mean, I, I don't know any other way. Hmm. I mean, even now, I still do an underground party in Minneapolis that we actually just brought back after almost three years of being silent because of COVID. And, you know, I flew back from Europe, gave myself five days, and I jumped in there and was finishing putting the bathrooms together, putting up lights, <laughs> running extension cords. And everyone would look at me and say, really, you're doing that? But I did the same thing when I threw my wall of sound parties here in Europe. Like in Rotterdam, I was moving speakers all day. Mm-hmm. And these promoters are looking at me saying, like, what, what are you doing? And I said, well, this is the only way I know how to do it. If you want it done right, you do it yourself. Mm-hmm. You, you, when this becomes your norm, you don't think about is it you know, the right or wrong thing to do. You just get your hands dirty and you do it. In the past, you've said that when you talk about music, sometimes you can sound really sentimental. But it's just because you have such a deep history and a deep respect for... Uh, the scene and the music that's given you so much and I can definitely hear it when you talk about these kinds of kinds of things but um, I wonder if as you've gotten older like has that shine sort of worn off a bit because the reality of having music as a career is actually different than it was when you were just throwing parties it's a good question (laughs) I mean I would say there are moments when I see the typical and I'm just going to say bullshit of our community that drag me down let's say in my head But when I get to go out and DJ and I have that amazing experience and I see the crowd had an amazing experience, I almost block out those things. And as long as that balance is in balance enough that I have those amazing life-changing experiences or I'm able to provide those for others, those other little bullshit things don't don't get in my way Mm. or don't stop me from continuing to be passionate about it. Because if this becomes just a job, I'll go get another job. Mm -hmm. I'd rather do what I love. Um, I guess I'm asking all of this to get to the point. You know, you were talking about throwing your own parties and managing everything and handing out flyers and finding the venue and setting everything up. Um, And I really relate to that as somebody who runs a podcast completely on my own. Um, And I know that that can be super rewarding, but also really exhausting. So I guess I wonder, like, what is that balance like for you still even now? I mean, you've said that if it stopped being worth it, then you would just do something else. So, yeah, what is that balance like for you? I mean, there's definitely, um, as I get older, there's, I guess, physical limitations that I need to pay attention Mm -hmm. to, like having bad knees or bad back or getting tired, but I have endless energy and I realize I'm not one of those people that knows how to sit still. So I have to put my time into it. I have to put my energy into something. And if I'm not, I'm not feeling rewarded in general. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I would be lying if I didn't say I get tired sometimes. Mm -hmm. Of course I do. And I even joke now that, um, you know, that like with traveling, somebody says, oh, you know, don't don't you hate traveling to DJ? And I said, well, you know, especially after the pandemic, traveling has become more complicated, a little bit harder, a little more annoying. But the reality is, is I almost say to people like you're paying me now for the inconvenience of travel, mm-hmm. but I play for free because I love to play just like anything else. I mean, it's if you love what you do, it, it's 
yes, it can be tiring, but it's so rewarding it doesn't really matter at that point. Does it make the the payoff or the reward sort of even even sweeter when it's something that you've put together, like your party, your label, uh, whatever else? I wish I I wish I could say yes to that because <laughs> because the thing is I don't get to experience those nights. Mm. Like I, I I wish, and I've always been the greatest compliment I get sometimes from people is they say I wish you could be on the floor when you play, mm. or I wish you could be at your party that you threw from an audience perspective. Mm-hmm. And I will never get the chance to experience that because I am the guy DJing. No matter how amazing it is, it's totally a different experience than the, for the person on the dance floor. Mm. So, I mean, yes, it's definitely rewarding, um, but I wish I could experience it from the other side. So is that something that's been sort of a through line also with your work as a DJ and a producer and a label manager? Like you've talked about how you're up there every night bearing your soul to the audience as an artist. So is that where the value of it comes in when you are getting to play? I mean, getting to play is the ultimate goal. Uh, like, I'm, I'm a DJ first. I've always said that as much as I have learned to enjoy production and do more of it over the years, my passion and my uh, satisfaction come from, you know, turning everything up loud and trying out music and playing and getting lost in that moment. So yeah, I mean, I I think it's uh, you know it's like psycho it's almost like psychology. Like I, every week, I I go speak to a psychologist on a nightly basis when I play music by just mm. expressing myself. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm just letting out whatever comes, and it, it's it's hugely rewarding and it's hugely satisfi- satisfying. Um, and there's going to be bad nights. Not every night is amazing mm-hmm. by any means, but you you hit that amazing night and it makes up for all the the terrible ones that might have led up to it or the mediocre ones that might have led up to it. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how do you pull yourself back from a night where maybe things haven't gone your way? Like, I guess I'm asking because I feel like, you know, when when you are shouldering all the responsibility yourself of being the person that does the party or, you know, it's your it's your DJ set, um, it's also like that the further you have, have to fall, if that makes sense. 100%. Like, Everything um, kind of falls on your shoulders. Yeah, exactly. So, like, for me, for example, with the podcast, I've been doing this now for four years, and I really love doing it, and I wish that I could say that that was enough to make me totally satisfied with how it's going, but it's not. Of course. I really pay attention a lot to numbers and like you know likes on Instagram and things that I really wish I didn't care about, but I do. We're here. Um, yeah, so is that something that you struggle with as well? I mean, I would say yes, and so here's an interesting balance. When I started my, when I started touring, I made it a point to make a conscious decision that I wasn't going to overuse social media. And I made that clear in every interview at the beginning, just like I did with producing. I was like, I'm not a producer. Don't expect a bunch of records from me. Mm -hmm. I'm a DJ. Set that level of expectation. When at some point social media became too much, I uh, announced that Enjoy Right Now campaign, and which was like banning cameras at clubs. Now, some people think, oh, I'm just this righteous guy who came up with these things because I just think I'm too cool for (laughs) everyone else. But no, it's because I'm human. Mm -hmm. And I know that I would also fall victim to half the shit that all these other people fall victim to of worrying about likes, success in social media. So by shutting that off and not making that part of my equation, Mm -hmm. it allows me to just have my experience and not worry about it. But I'm still human. And of course I go look. (laughs) And of course I go look at what people are saying or how their reaction is. But also I have to somehow find ways to, you know, toast it off my shoulder off to the side because mm-hmm. I remember like when I started DJing, if I had a bad night, it was written all over my face. I can't hide my emotion. So you would see that something was wrong with me. And at some point, a friend looked at me and just said, listen, man, the party's got to go on. Like you may have still, you may have had a bad experience, but somebody in that audience, you might have changed mm-hmm. their life. So don't make them question it with your bad attitude mm-hmm. or your... Or you're like, ah, that wasn't my best night. Just say thank you and move on to the next. And That's a really nice way of looking at and it. And keep going. And, and because the reality is, is, you know, I'm still going to have another gig the next day or mm-hmm. the next week. And if I let that one affect me too long, I mean, it does affect me. But if it, I let it affect me too long, then it, it's going to drag me down the wrong path. Is that also just like time and experience? You have been doing this now for however long and therefore, you know, if you let all of the bad gigs get to you, then you wouldn't really be doing anything. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I still get anxious before every gig. You know, like there's, really? yeah, not like in a nervous way. I'm confident in my skills and my ability, but I get anxious because I'm excited or, or even I'm, I see that it's going to be shit and I'm like, how am I going to get through this? <laughs> you know, there's different reasons for that anxiety, but I get it before every gig. 
when you when you said that you made this conscious decision to put that level of expectation on people or whatever it was yeah. that you said, how has it been like actually enacting that? Like, I mean, do you- again, I'm human, <laughs> so I I can't. I mean, I can only do my best mm-hmm. to have the right attitude. Some nights I'm gonna fail at that right attitude or wrong attitude, and. I mean, my agent's been with me on a few gigs where she's like, suck it up because she sees me just being, you know, snotty or, or just like complaining, not to anyone else, but to her because we trust yeah, yeah, each yeah. other. And because um, I'm human. I mean, like I always use that. I'm not, it's not an excuse. It's just a reality. Like we're all human. Mm-hmm. No matter how perfect somebody might appear, they all have insecurities. Mm-hmm. They all have opinions on things, whether they let it affect them or not is night to night. Working as a DJ in general, like... What is it that you need from a night or from your career in general to make you feel valued as an artist or to make it feel worth it? Another big question. Another <laughs> good one. Um, I mean, on like a night-to-night basis, for me, it's I need the sound to be good. And as much as I want the sound to be good for other people, I need it first good for me in the booth. Like some people look at my rider and they think I'm crazy because we ask for all the details about the sound system, the amplifiers, the Mm -hmm. monitors, the amplifiers Mm -hmm. there. We ask all these technical questions and, you know, they might complain, let's say, my agent will say, listen, Zach is coming to do the best job he can and you need to give him the tools to do that. Like for me, the monitors are the most important because then I can get into my own vibe and I can get into my own atmosphere and enjoy it myself. And I and as much as people maybe think we're entertaining others, I need to first get my moment inside my mind and my headspace and then I can deliver it to you. And then hopefully you have as good of a sound system to experience it on. But there's, it's almost like undescribable. I mean, you, you could write it a hundred different ways but it's that magic. It's that moment. Every night I'm chasing that magic and you just don't know if you're going to get it. Mm. And there's so many elements to it. You could have the best sound, the best lights, the best everything. And it could be the worst fucking party ever. Mm. You could also have the shittiest sound, the shittiest everything and have it be the most amazing night. And, and that's the magic that you can't formulate. I can mm. give like I can always tell people some ideas. You need this, this, this and this. Still doesn't guarantee a good time. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you said about the sound. I was thinking, I, I was thinking more like so. For me, for example, if I were to like qualify, quantify yeah. what I need in order to feel that that my work is valued, it's like people's comments to me about having listened to something that I did, or um, somebody sharing my one of my episodes on social media, or somebody coming up to me on a night out and saying that they enjoyed the last interview that I did. Um, well, so maybe my answer would be along the same lines, <laughs> uh-huh. but maybe it isn't because I've tried to consciously separate myself from those being my validators. Mm. And like, I understand, especially for a podcast, you don't know, it's not live to a crowd sitting in front of us right now. So you have to put it out to the world and then gauge what comes back from that. For me, I'm in a moment live in front of people. And Mm -hmm. there's been, and same thing, like, because I don't post photos of my gigs, I don't give people a a place to interact with me to say, oh my God, that was so amazing. So I've removed, and actually I can even give you this example. Like when I first removed posting any photos from nights, I lost the engagement with my audience on Facebook where I have my followers to respond back to me to tell me how great the night was. Mm -hmm. And at first I kind of panicked and I was like, oh my God, nobody's commenting, nobody's saying anything. I thought that night was amazing, nobody said a word. And then I got used to not getting that feedback because Mm -hmm. I didn't give them a way to give me that feedback. Mm -hmm. And now, five, six, seven years later, maybe that's not why that's not my first answer. That's not actually not what I need anymore. Mm, interesting. So for another example, I don't actually know if this has anything to do with what we're talking about, but I'm just going to bring it up <laughs> Go and we'll see. <laughs> so I know that at one point you owned a club in Minneapolis, yeah. is that right? Um, but you had to close it. Yep. So I guess I'm just asking like in terms of having something and having it not work out and you know those kind of hardships where you feel like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but feel, feeling like a failure, yeah. does that stick with you? I think if you learn from your mistakes, it doesn't need to stick with you, you know, and I've made many mistakes. I've stuck my foot into many ponds and pools and, <laughs> and, and tested the water. But no, I mean, it was a it was a great experience and I'll always believe that it was a good experience because it taught me uh, value in my time, value in my money, value in my investment. Um, it taught me you know, certain lessons that I would never have learned had I not done that. Like now as a DJ, I understand mm. what a club owner is going through, <laughs> what a promoter is going through, what a sound guy. I mean, all those experiences, 
success or failure have given me the understanding to know every angle of what I'm trying to achieve now. When you had the club and you were, maybe this is personal, but um, when you had the club and you were, you know, coming up to that point where you felt like you had to close, what was that like for you? Devastating. Mm -hmm. I mean, 100%. I mean, I I called my mother and cried like a little baby, you know? (laughs) I mean, uh, of course. Um, But in that moment, I mean, you're going to feel pain. If you cut yourself, it hurts. Mm -hmm. But then you look back later and you go, ah, it's just a scar. It's okay. It Mm -hmm. it actually gives you a little style, a little little flavor. (laughs) So, I mean, in any moment of disaster, it hurts. Of course it hurts. And, uh, And it takes time to come back from it. But anything you survive makes you more resilient. Did that experience make it more difficult for you to try other projects again later on in your life? I, I wish I would have learned that lesson, but no, <laughs> obviously, obviously not. I still, I still jump headfirst into things that I believe I should do. And so, talking about value, like feeling, feeling your worth as a creator. Yeah. Um, at what point does money come into the conversation? I, I can't remember who I heard this comment from or where I heard it, but you know, it's like the, the you have the classic line of you know, money doesn't make buy you happiness. Mm. But money sure does make it easy to, to buy things that make you happy, yeah. right? Um, so, of course, you need money to survive. And, you know, I've lived in, like, I'm 45 now. I've lived in the different stages of being a broke artist, a struggling artist, uh, a mediocre, successful artist, to being a financially secure artist. And then I've lost things. I've invested more. But I think, you know, yes, we need money. Money makes the world go around. It, there's no hiding that. So, um I think there's a level of you needing to decide what is your definition of success. I mean, like even my mother, who's of a different generation, you know, her her definition of financial success is doctor, lawyer. You know, ex- yeah. she comes from a different generation. My definition of success is freedom. Uh-huh. Very diff- two very different things that maybe have a different dollar amount value to them. So, mm-hmm. I think for everyone, it's like how do you define what makes you happy and how much money that means. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what makes you happy? I mean, again, I'm free to do what I want. I don't have to conform. I've turned things down even when they paid a lot of money because I was in the position to say no. Mm. Because I was like, that won't make me happy. And that's a very privileged position to be in, 100%. Say, yeah. but, it, but it didn't come. I haven't lived in that privileged position for the last 28 years of my DJing. That's only been maybe in the last seven or eight mm-hmm. maximum maybe even less where I've, I think I've hit the point where I'm successful, quote, quote, unquote, <laughs> in what I do. Talking about these varying levels of success, like did any of those levels change your love of music or change your love of your career? Like, was there a point where you were like, I'm broke, I hate this, I want to give up, and, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, there was, a, there was a moment after I think my first three years of touring where I, I remember breaking down to my agent and I just said, I, I hadn't taken a break. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was that guy, like I said, I'm kind of not human. When, when um, people throw things at me and my schedule and like I know we're going to talk about Ace Slice later and other things, I, I will work ungodly amounts of hours on projects. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter to me. And I can just handle those things. But... Um, you know, there was like a moment, I think, three years into my beginning of my touring where I toured every weekend, was flying back to the U.S. every two weeks, and I hit exhaustion, and I panicked. And I was like, I can't do this. Uh, I need a break. And we we got me a break. We figured out how to work my future of like, what's my limitation and where do I need pauses? I feel like, so for me with the podcast, um, I feel like... You know, I don't make money from this podcast. Yep. I do it all by myself. And I feel like people often say to me like, oh, you should get a sponsor. Or like you should try to monetize it in some way. And somehow I think that would make me hate it. Like I don't yeah. think I would want to do it anymore. So it's funny like asking about, you know, varying levels of success and maybe the monetary thing would make technically make me be more successful, but actually less, less happy. happy. I mean, I, I've had young kids come up and ask me advice and I always say like, keep your day job mm-hmm. as long as you can, because actually the freedom to do music without money being a pressure allows you to be a hundred percent more free to do whatever you want. And at first they don't get it. And then when they come back a few years later, like I totally get it. I understand what you meant. And even like, let's say you quit your day job and you start becoming an artist full time. Mm -hmm. You think you're going to have all this extra time to write music and you actually might not Mm -hmm. because suddenly all that freedom and open time makes you actually less productive. Mm -hmm. So there's this, again, it's like finding that perfect balance between being productive, getting money, having freedom, surviving. What's your, (laughs) what's your, what's your want in survival? Uh What is that definition? I mean, 
I, again, I've been lucky, and I did. I, I can't even take credit saying like I knew what I was doing, but because I almost say too much sometimes, <laughs> um, which we'll learn during this podcast, is like <laughs> I I put it out to the world what I wanted it to become, and mm. it became that. So by saying. I know I'm human, I'm I'm insecure, I don't want to look at social media, so I'm going to re- eliminate that by creating this project. Okay, now I got to live up to it. And mm-hmm. by living up to those things, I actually kept myself in the lane that I wanted to be. Looking back now, I'm like, that was perfect. <laughs> so I can't even say that I knew what I was doing at that moment, but it um, it definitely worked out and it gave me the freedom. And like, even though now I am full-time an artist for the last, mm-hmm. I don't know how many years, I don't have that pressure. I don't feel that pressure. I've set myself up not to have that sellout feeling um, or I need to do this for that. Mm. Um, but I'm lucky in that. And I can't even take credit for be- have making that <laughs> right decision. I just, I got lucky and I made some right moves. I know that for me, for example, I was a waitress for like a decade before I started being able to like comfortably live off being a journalist full time. Yep. Um, and we're talking a lot about money, but I think also an important part of like this being able to sustain your own living off the thing that you love is just the confidence that it gives you to not have to rely on like other sources of yes. income I think so was there like a shift for you in in your confidence level in terms of feeling feeling like you had made it as an artist I think it was when my agent told me um, it was funny so you know you look at these big artists in let's say DJ world and they all mm-hmm. take uh, January off right uh-huh. that's kind of like the typical uh, let's call it big DJ month off January mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember like I would never take January off I wasn't at that level and then my agent looked at me and says take January off I said what are you talking about and they were like you've earned it and then I said are you sure and he said listen if somebody wants to book DVS one, there's only one of you. There's not two. Mm-hmm. So you know what? You deserve, like you've made it to that point where what you have is unique to you and nobody else can replace that or duplicate that. So take care of you and take that month off. And mm-hmm. I was like, I think that's when I actually suddenly thought, I think I made it. I understood that I had something unique or something that was a singular voice and that there wasn't 10 of me. And did that change your output like like your levels of passion surely have just stayed the same since always regardless of how much i think i think yeah i think it cemented my passion i don't think Mm -hmm. it changed it higher or lower i just think it cemented it and it gave me you know of course when you're worried about like where your next check or where your next year is going to be or if you're going to be able to maintain in whatever you're doing you're constantly having that concern so i think when i was explained that i hit that point i was able to just settle down and exhale and be like, I'm here. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go anywhere. What can I do with this space creativity? What can I do with this influence? And um, and how can I use it? And so maybe that's what changed when I realized or was told, hey, you succeeded. You know. So I, I think maybe it just opened up and broadened the spectrum of what I could do. a lot about I guess like the your sense of value your sense of success and how this is all related to your happiness so I wonder if that's sort of why you made the move to come up with a platform like a slice to kind of show that there is value beyond just the happiness of making music yeah I mean I I don't know if you're aware of also this other project I did before which was SOS Mm -hmm. so SOS was maybe even my first attempt at like really giving something back to a community um, that's given me so much and unfortunately, SOS fell short because it literally got launched on like to the public with all the content, all the videos that we did, the whole presentation, 
the day the pandemic hap- hit mm. Europe, the dance community. Wow. So RA announced it. We had media set up everywhere. <laughs> and then literally the world collapsed. So <laughs> Bad timing. Bad timing. <laughs> you know, and then the pandemic gave me the moment to think about A-Slice. And yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where to me, this will be part of my legacy, whether it succeeds or not. Like I, I tried. And it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, it, it's this community has given me a lot whether it be success, whether it be, um, you know, travels, life experience, uh, ups and downs, left and right, twists and turns, (laughs) but it's given me a lot. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who are actually genuinely trying to do uh, or have the same experience I did. And Mm -hmm. if I can help them in some way due to what I've succeeded with, um, why not? I guess I'm asking also in terms of like people getting paid fairly for their work. Yeah. Obviously, that also contributes to happiness. And is that something that was on your mind, like, at the, at the core of it? I mean, to me, it's funny. The money, of course, again, we lead back to money, right? <laughs> so, so, of course, the money is one part of the compensation of what A-Slice does. But the other big one is the motivation. Mm. Because I know as an artist and other artists that I've spoken to and artists I've helped by releasing their music, the legitimization of what they're doing mm. by other people... Mm-hmm can literally be the deciding factor of, do I keep going? Do I keep trying? Do I buy another machine? Do Mm. I spend another hour in my studio? Do I actually put more effort into this? And what I've noticed with A-Slice is that the money is one part of it, but actually the the reality that these kids are just being noticed for what they're doing Mm -hmm. is almost worth 10 times more than the money they're going to get. Mm-hmm. Like really, they just needed that pat on the back because we live in this digital world now where all this information just gets thrown into it and you don't really know if any of it actually got to anyone. Mm. So this is actually like returning that information back to them with a gold star being like, yep, I played your music. Yeah, a friend of mine actually um, is uh, a member of A-Slice. I don't sure. know if that's what you call it. Registered or whatever. Registered. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he posts a lot on Instagram of like when when a DJ that he doesn't know plays his... He gets a report tracks. and it he, says like so-and-so played their track. so inspiring for people. Absolutely. And that's what I mean. Like, you know, he's not even... I mean, maybe he's thinking about the money and mm. at the end of the quarter, he'll be like, how much did I get? But right now what it's doing is giving him that that pat on the back. It's giving him that notification. It's giving him that motivation to keep going. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to all of this, but I yeah, want to yeah. talk a bit about... An essay that you wrote for Accelerator several years ago where you talked about how the industry has taken a turn from art to <laughs> entertainment. Yes. Um, so how do you think that that has impacted like the perceived value of music or of your your music? I mean, I don't know how it... I'm, I'm sure it's impacted my music on some level because uh, promoters who want to book entertainment aren't interested in me anymore because mm-hmm. I'm trying to push a feeling, an art, or an emotion or something that's... I, I hate using the word real, but something more real. You don't know what you're going to get with me. But I think it's impacted our community for the worse. I mean, because it's no longer, it's less and less about music. Mm. And it's more and more about likes and more and more mm. about selfies and more and more. I mean, how many artists can we probably sit here and make a list of that don't post anything about music anymore? Mm-hmm. And all they do is post their selfies and their calendar dates mm-hmm. or the video of them playing at some big party. And meanwhile, they're not giving any credit to the music Mm -hmm. that's in that video or anything. So it's really selfish. And as a young generation, they're looking up to that. And whether they know or not that it's good or bad, that's what they end up having to chase because they believe that is the definition of success. Where I think before, you know, your art was the definition of your success. Mm. Do you think A Slice can help to alleviate that in some way? Like, you know, we just talked about... um, younger artists feeling like their work is valued because they're getting this recognition that their art is being treated as the art that they made it out to be. Yeah, I mean, well, let's even think about how how many producers feel the pressure to become DJs because that's where the income Mm. is. And maybe with A-Slice, we can level that out a little bit. Maybe we get them value for their production and they don't have to be DJs and they can actually sit and become masters at production because they can spend the next 10 years focused on their production, living their life, being absolutely happy. And even how that affects the DJ world, like not everyone needs to be a a DJ. So it lessens the pressure of a hundred other DJs trying to come up being copycats of each other. I mean, I, I think... I think it definitely can change things. Mm-hmm. I, I I know at least in the micro, like zoomed in, I know of a few producers who are literally sending me 30, 40 tracks a month. And imagine if 10 of us were to play their music regularly and pay them for it. 
I might be able to pay their rent for them. And if I can do that, that actually changes their life. You touched on this a little bit, but do you think that this will also push creators in the direction of quality control, like putting out putting out fewer releases but better ones? Like you've talked a little bit about this in another interview where you said you didn't care about the vinyl versus digital debate, but rather the quality control of music in general. That if you had to put your money where your mouth is, that you would think twice about putting out something that's yeah, mediocre. Yeah. So do you think that... A slice no. of no. <laughs> unfortunately, I unfortunately I wish I could say yes, but no, because really, it, I mean, it's it, it's not. There's no way it's going to slow down what people are making or make them choose differently because mm. there's still no money involved in mm. in the deciding factor of what you send to somebody. Mm-hmm. Whether somebody plays it or not is is up to that DJ's perception mm. or hands of what they think that music is worth to them. Like, do I actually like it? Will I actually play it? Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, no. I don't think it will affect that. I wish it would, but I don't think it will. I wonder also, because you've been outspoken about this in the past, um, especially with your SOS platform, about not letting commerce interfere with techno. So I'm just wondering a bit about putting this sort of monetary focus on music. Like, does that not bring in the commerce factor for you? or In terms of with A-Slice, I, I think no, because in the end, again, an artist can send as much music as they want. A label can send as many promos as they want, but it's no longer about some bullshit top 10 chart that you put on Beatport or on Resident Advisor to you know promote your friend, your buddy's label, your remix. And uh, my partner always jokes, one Aphex tune track to make you look cool. <laughs> So the thing is, is that, no, actually, I don't think it will, because in the end, it still has to get into somebody's hands who's Mm. willing to play it on a dance floor. It's much easier to make a fake chart and say, yeah, these are my top 10 favorites, than actually go and play that music on a dance floor (laughs) and, and stand behind it and say, yeah, I played this. So actually, no, I don't, I don't think it will. That's really interesting what you said about like standing behind what you, what you played. And I feel like it's. I don't know. It's it makes me think of like people who don't want to share their track IDs, um, sort of thing. Oh, I could go into that one for a while. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I've been, I've been, I was always a secretive DJ. Like mm. when people would ask me what track something was, if I could actually remember, because I don't remember half the time, I would tell them the artist, but not the track, because I would always argue that they should go discover that artist and then buy even more stuff, buy it, steal it, whatever they're gonna do. <laughs> But find even more by that artist. And with A-Slice, I've had to actually, for the first time, share more information than I've ever felt comfortable sharing. Mm. But the reality is, is like we gave DJs, the fan section hasn't launched with A-Slice, but this is where this will make sense. In the future, these playlists will appear in our fan section. And an artist like me can choose to display artist only Mm -hmm. or all track info. So if it's artist only... I can kind of keep my secrets and do what I originally intended to do years ago, right, which is right, right. here's the artist I play. Go find more info about mm. them. So you've also talked about how if electronic music is to be respected as like a legitimate genre, it's our responsibility to push knowledge and education as much as entertainment. Um, so do you think that A-Slice also contributes to that, like making the marketplace of electronic music more legitimate, more respected in the wider world of music? I, I think if the electronic music genre can solve its own problem, I think it will add to our respect level in mm. the future. And if A-Slice can help be the catalyst to solve the problem of some of the problems with royalties, we can't solve all of it, but if we can solve some of the problem with royalties, with equalizing the pay between, or the disparities between producer and DJ, I think that just sets our community up for a better future. Maybe we don't see the results in the first year or two, but maybe in 10, if this becomes the norm, this becomes less of an issue in our community. And maybe we, if this is where it started, then maybe our community gets respected for handling its own business and Mm. fixing its own problems, where how many other communities can really say that they've done that? So is that like lack of respect something that is on your mind at all? Like, is that something that you uh, have encountered? You know, I mean, I actually, maybe I need to step back from that one and say, because electronic music has gotten bigger over the years, it is more respected now. But maybe my definition of house and techno is very different from somebody else's definition of those two words. But you know, what? what's interesting right now is that this first wave generation are starting to either pass away, mm-hmm. retire, or, or kind of move away from the spotlight. And so who sets the tone now for the respect level, the artistic level, the DJing level, the magic level? There's a whole generation that like set that tone for all of us, whether we know it or not. Like some of these young kids may have never heard some of these legends, but they don't even realize how far their, their uh, influence all the way comes down the ladder to even to them. But when they disappear, 
I kind of worry, what, what do we have after that? Maybe this is too esoteric, but like <laughs> my generation and a few years before or after me, like we're, we're, we're maybe some of us are the ones who have to set that tone. Maybe this is just my contribution to try to set the tone the right way. Yeah, I was going to say, it's sort of like this DIY mentality that we were talking about at the top of this conversation. You know, nobody else is going to do this project, so therefore you're going to do it. Yeah, I, I, would, I guess that I don't know how to answer that any other <laughs> simply than just, yes. You know, it, it's it, if you want to get it done, you do it yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And if you see other people doing something you appreciate, you try to align with them. You try to be allies with them. Like, I've always been independent, but I've always tried to seek out other people who I have a little bit of eye-to-eye, level-level mm-hmm. with, and, you know, maybe collaborate with on some level or gain influence from them or at least have a good conversation to learn something from them. This legitimacy that we were talking about, is that also a way of like giving back to the music and giving back to the, your community? Call it legitimacy, call it respect. You know, I also think it's whether people want to admit it or not, when they're in the limelight or when they're in their spotlight, it's influential to so many other people. And whether they know it or not, and maybe somebody will argue with me, it's not their responsibility. But I think a lot of us have this unwritten responsibility to lead and set certain directions of you know what we believe is right, wrong, mm. and, and righteous. It's like even when I started throwing parties, I realized that there was other people looking at what I was doing the same way I was looking at other people when mm. I was trying to learn how to do it. And you know, you might get bad influence or good influence. So I, I think somewhere subconsciously, I'm trying to get good influence out there. I'm trying to put out positive things. I'm trying to lead in positive directions and, and set that right tone for somebody looking up to me the same way I learned from who I, who I looked up to. Do you feel like you're a bit alone in that sense? Interesting. On some things, maybe, yes. Um, because I think a lot of people are just happy to eat, shit, sleep, and breathe, <laughs> and, and they don't need to do much else. And at some point, maybe I'll reach that level too. Uh, I'm sure I will at some point. So there's sometimes where definitely, yeah, I feel, let's say, alone on certain aspects of trying to push change. Um, but then I, again, I meet people who are on that same level. Mm. Maybe they don't have the same influence, the same power, or the same resources, but I see that they're on the same level. So then I feel less alone in doing it because I know it's reaching somebody. So what other parts of your roots can we maybe bring back into this part of the conversation? Like, I get the sense that your early rave experiences also played a role in the development of A-Slice in some way. Like, earlier we were talking about this sort of cross-city support network that you had in the Midwest. Um, and that you couldn't have accomplished what you did without friends in other nearby places. I never thought about it like that. So yeah. is that also sort of at the heart of what you're doing now, like that we can't do this job alone? I can't. I mean, I've been saying this actually within our group meetings with A-Slices, like we've built something to help the community, but we can't save the community. The community mm. has to choose to save itself. So actually realizing the global reach of our community and the people who we're talking to and the people who are uploading and the people who we're paying out makes me actually realize that there are other allies and it's just a matter of time before we all really get connected and and once we all connect it's like voltron you know you you can't you can't stop us because there's too many parts and pieces you know one of the things i loved reading about a slice was that you know producers for example who had like a banger in the 80s or 90s and now are just like retired and you know doing something totally different and then they can get a sort of new lease on their work thanks to this project um can you talk a bit about that yeah, I mean, you know, we, we called it honoring our heroes, but mm-hmm. like there's so many artists from that era who got screwed over. Uh, Trax Records screwed over Larry Hurd and, you know, a um, guy called Gerald uh, got, never got paid for his hits. And there's so many. So, I mean, this is, I, I can't imagine how many times I played Can You Feel It by Mr. Fingers <laughs> over the years and realizing like he never got paid. He had some hearing problems and tinnitus really bad a few years back and was like, he said he was done touring. I think he's done a few shows since. But that man should be able to survive the rest of his (laughs) life and live at a decent level just from the tracks he's written. Mm -hmm. And if he can't, let me try to help him out. Uh, And that's only like one or two just quick ones, but there's so many more. And there's, I'm sure if we actually dug into it, there's hundreds and thousands of artists who, who just didn't know any better at that time. And even now, I will say that translates like young artists don't know any better. They don't see that royalties or collections work, so they don't register their music. Maybe A-Slice can bridge that gap because if they don't know any better, they're not going to take the historical route to try to get paid. So maybe we can offer them a different way. I mean, this is a lot of like 
terminology, Yeah, I feel like. So what about the more, I guess, humanity aspect of it, like the, the passion sort of side of it? Is that also something that's driving you? A hundred percent. I mean, I mean, there's a, this is not going to be, I mean, of course, like there was a bunch of articles that popped up, you know, patting me on the back for doing this. But mm. the reality is this isn't going to pay my bills. This is not going to, uh, you know, get me another gig tomorrow. And in uh, six months, the articles won't be about me. It'll be about a slice. So, you know, this has to be for passion. This has mm -hmm. to be because I believe in something, you know, I put up my own money for this. So the reality is this has to be more than it has to be for passion. It has to be because I believe it. I'm selling this because I truly believe in it. And so what about for you? Like, it seems like you could just live your life and be a DJ and that would be great. And I ask myself <laughs> this all the time. Why did I, why do I do other things? Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am actually wondering, like it just, it seems like you could just live your life as a DJ and, and that would be enough probably. And yeah. so what, what is it for you that makes you want to have all these different projects? You know, not just this one, but SOS as well. What is it about your personality that makes you want to have your hands in all these different pots? Like I said, I can't, I can't sit still. I mean, if I sit still, I think I'm failing or I, or I get bored or I just start walking around in circles. So, I mean, part of it is just to fulfill my own need of, of staying occupied, but B it's, Again, like I, I've read so many stories or seen documentaries or, you know, read in the history books about people who have given back uh, through their success. And I'm always just amazed when you hear these things and you mm. find these things. And a lot of them weren't doing it for the publicity or the hype or they didn't change anything about their life. It just they I succeed. I give back. And I've connected with those stories. So uh, it's I don't know what else I'd be doing. I mean, like I, I I've. I've already been DJing and around music for almost 30 years. Why, you know, I'm going to be in it for as long as I can be. But I need something more than just that. I, need, I, I can't just settle in and be like, cool, I DJ every weekend. That's enough for me. If it's fine for somebody else, mm. I have no judgment on them. <laughs> But it's just not enough for me. It kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about just like passion, the passion for it um, being enough or not being enough. And it seems like this is taking that sort of to the next level, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's all, I mean, call it deep thoughts or whatever, but it's, uh, you know, when I'm DJing and I'm picking music or when I'm looking through stuff, suddenly now it takes on a whole nother meaning. Now this is, I know I'm going to report that and I know I'm going to be giving something and you know, it's, there's just something deeper to it. And like, ultimately that magic moment that we create DJing is like creating a deeper experience for myself, for somebody on the dance floor. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all, all these things, actually, when you think about them beyond their surface level thing, there's something deeper to this. Like there's something that connects all of us in a deeper way by, by some of these projects that we do. I like what you said about having a different sort of perspective of when you're now getting your tunes ready to go play a gig. Um, what has that been like since since the launch of A Slice? Like, it's been slow <laughs> because I've been so occupied with A Slice. I've actually not been as as active as I. I mean, I would spend. I'm I'm crazy. I would spend hours every day digging for music or mm -hmm. editing music um, or ripping records. And I'm only now starting to come back to it after about the last six months, where I've barely been by a thread, like getting a few new tracks in. Mm -hmm. But luckily, I have enough music in my catalogs that I always had something fresh to play, but now I'm starting to find a little bit of breathing room after A Slice launched to actually go back to that routine of a couple mm. hours every day, pulling music. I'm not picking music because of A Slice, yeah. but I'm thinking deeper about when I get a track from, like, because again, I didn't do podcasts, <laughs> I didn't do mixes, I didn't release top tens, I didn't do all these things. I never was able to shout out and give love to anybody whose music I played. And now I just like, I know I can. Just makes it even more like fulfilling that when somebody sends me a track and I say thank you, hold tight, there might be another thank you coming. And if I play it, you're gonna get a real thank you now. So it actually makes me even feel better about taking that music and turning it into my own and getting paid for it to, to DJ it out in front of a crowd. Like there's no guilt anymore. So is this, you know, we talked earlier about how you have this really deep sort of gratitude and respect to the scene that you came up in and just music in general. So do you think that that gratitude is just sort of deepening as time goes on? It's deepening on a different level. And I, and I think it's, um, you know, same way. Imagine now if I can create that same deep gratitude from somebody else mm. for their scene. Like imagine now you're that young producer who suddenly 
life becomes lively because of a slice now suddenly you respect the scene even more suddenly you respect your community more maybe suddenly you think deeper about your community so again all these things like influence down the ladder and they just keep going and maybe this is how i influence another generation of you know some to somebody it might just be a check to somebody else it might just be a tax write-off but to somebody else it might really well be like a, a a love and appreciation for this as a community and not an industry it's another side benefit I just thought of right now. You know, like, I, but but because we're talking about, yeah, like, my own appreciation, I'm realizing, like, this could actually, because my deeper appreciation came from the fact that this got me to where I am. If A-Slice can do that for somebody else, why wouldn't it potentially give them that appreciation? Then we have more appreciative people uh-huh. in a community full of fakers. You know, like, it's great. It's perfect. What would the ideal sort of utopia look like for you in terms of how we consume and place value on art and music? I mean, this would be totally utopian and I don't think we'll ever achieve it, but I just think people being honest. It's like, if I can afford it, I pay for things. If I can't, I try to get in free. When I was broke, I would ask people for a guest list. When I can afford it, I don't. Or if I do, I still pay when I get to the door, even if I'm on the guest list. I like to take care of things when I can. And I think if people were honest in a utopia, like this is complete (laughs) fantasy because this will not exist. Maybe in Bizarro World. But, uh... You know, it'd be people just being honest. Like, to somebody who, uh, you know, I don't know, has no money and steals my music, fine, go ahead and steal it. I don't really care. But if you got money, pay for it. Like, I I get promos sometimes, and the promo expires, and I go buy the track, and the label writes me, and is like, why did you buy the track? We would have sent it to you. And I'm like, I'm happy to buy it, because I can. So I think if people would just show appreciation, whether it be financial or non-financial, on an honest level, that would be utopia. You've been listening to DVS1 for Air Podcast, episode 47. We'll be back on the last Wednesday of the month, so check back in August for another episode. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at at underscore air podcast or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash air podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.